I wonder if you could um, keep that passage there open in front of you if you're able to. Might find that helpful. And uh, what we've been uh, doing since we've sort of come back since the school term has started is to um, think about what it looks like to live well as we're returning back to sort of more of normal life. I guess the thing has been to ask, well, what would it look like not to just return to normal uh, back with all the sort of old, maybe bad habits that were sort of there as well? But what would it look like to just live well? And so this morning, we're, we're looking at just a small section here from the book of Ecclesiastes. Amazing sort of book for you to sort of look at and, and think about later on, perhaps, if you get the chance. This book of uh, wisdom. And, and we're looking at what does it look like and, and what do we do when we're not really sure what way to go in life. And I wonder if you've ever had that sort of a moment. Or maybe you have one of those at the minute. That sort of decision on maybe it would be a job or a, a move or a project or a, a particular purchase that's left you just unsure what to do. You just find yourself coming and going between what would be the right way to go that we find ourselves in that place sometimes and so this morning if nothing else I hope that the sort of message that you'll get from the writer here is just do it in 1976 Gary Gilmore was the first person in America to be placed on death row for almost a decade uh, a motivist Gilmore had murdered a gas station employee and a motel clerk despite his lawyers filing for an appeal Gilmore actually had insisted that he wanted to be executed. This desire to die inspired a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel called The Executioner's Song, uh, and a movie adaptation, uh, and also a punk song, Gary Gilmore's Eyes. But Gilmore's biggest legacy is probably less well-known. Gilmore's final words given before his execution were, let's do it. They were a final sort of cry of defiance and determination. And yet, oddly, it was these very words, adapted very slightly, that became the advertising slogan for Nike. Advertising executive Dan Whedon heard these words and pitched them in 1988 as just do it. What if the statement of Gilmore actually could be turned to good? What if it could be used to encourage determination, drive and rejecting excuses in everyday life for everyday people? That was the idea, at least. Gilmore said it to be done with his inevitable death, didn't he? Nike said it to sell you some shoes and almost everything else under the sun. The teacher here is saying, just do it, for you to just get going, to not be put off from moving by what you can't control, to stop waiting to know everything before you make a decision. Just do it. Look at verses 1 to 2 there with me. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you'll find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. And there's two things we see here in these two verses that I want to show you. Firstly, there's a faithful industry. And then there is a faithful generosity. There is a faithful industry. There's a faithful working, isn't there? Cast your bread upon the waters, for you'll find it after many days. I wonder if you've ever had one of those decisions where it just leaves you with option paralysis. 
I find this at takeaways, uh, the worst probably is Janetta's ice cream. You stand there before all the flavors and you just think, how on earth am I expected to seriously make a choice here? And you just turn it over and over and I'm just stood there and everybody's getting annoyed sort of waiting behind me. Here the picture is of someone stood at the water's edge trying to decide, do I go for it or not? Do I trust my goods, my life, and my well-being to the waves? Do I trust the waves to be able to carry my shipment? And, and the picture in the image is of uh, sea trade. Do I trust the waters with potentially maybe my very livelihood or not? And so the teacher says here, just do it. You know, the reality here for people in, in this business of, of sea trade is it's very lucrative, but it's very risky. This is, you know, the prime way of travel uh, and marketing. It's far faster than on the land. You can get far further to new clients. But it's risky because it's the sea and it's simply beyond our control. And we know that there's just such a potential that you could put all of those goods in there and you could load all of your hopes on, on that uh, shipment getting across and you making that money and that money getting across to you and it could all come to nothing. And yet, one shipment going right could be enough to last your lifetime. So it's risk and reward. The person stood at the seafront wondering what to do and just being in an option paralysis isn't stupid in a way. They're very sensible. Do I go for it or not? Do I go all in on this and risk losing it? And yet, do I hold back and then miss out on everything that could come? So he says, just do it. You know, those who find bread are usually those who had a go. And having a go here is actually entrusting it to the Father. You know, there is a sinful risk aversion in life. You know, we're British, so one of the things about Brits is risk aversion gets repackaged as being very sensible, wise, prudent, and careful. I mean, isn't that a good thing to be with finances? Yes, sometimes. But there can be a sinful risk aversion. There can be a godly stewardship that's careful, that's not irresponsible, right? That doesn't go for every single thing, every offer and every pop-up ad that comes to you online. But there can be a sinful risk aversion. It could be a risk aversion that's a refusal to trust the Father's hand. And so here, we're called to just do it, to entrust it to the Father. Reminds me of the parable of the talents that Jesus tells. And whether you're given five talents or two or one, there's an expectation from the master there in Jesus' story to do something with what's been given. Whatever you do, do something with it. And so the one with five and the one with two, they go off and they trade and they try to find ways to put that money to work and to bring some sort of a return to the master. 
And then we have the one who simply buries the talent in the ground. Because, so he says, he's afraid of the master. He says, I know that you take a profit for it. It's not due. I was afraid of you, so I just buried it. Here you go. Have it back. How does the master respond? Well, he responds by saying, you wicked and slothful servant. Why did he just bury it and not do anything with it? Well, presumably he's afraid that if he goes back to the master and he has tried to trade it, but he's failed, that the master will be angry. Well, you know, I gave you all of this money and then you've lost it. Yet actually, the master is more annoyed that he simply didn't try. He simply did nothing. It's a laziness. Whatever you do do with what God has given you, don't do nothing. There's a faithful industry. Cast your bread upon the waters. You'll find it after many days. But secondly, there's a faithful generosity. Look at that there, how it shifts into verse 2 there. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. Just as actually faith should lead you to a place of not holding back in taking a risk sometimes, in stepping out in faith, it should also uh, lead you to a place where you're not holding back in terms of generosity. Faith leads you to actually just having a go, casting your bread on the waters. It also leads you to giving a portion to seven or to eight. And yet, why might you hold back? Why might the teacher feel they would need to say this, to remind us that we ought not hold back a portion? Well, Maybe here's three at least ways in which we might be tempted or prone to hold back. Well, firstly, we might feel as though, I earned this. I earned this. I want to keep hold of it. It presumes, by the way, doesn't it, that I provided for myself and not that God provided for me, even through my work. He enabled me to have that. He enabled me to be able to make that return. He gave me those skills to be used. I earned this. Or perhaps, again, it's that sort of risk aversion. What if I run short? And again, notice that it's very easy for that to drift into assuming and and presuming that my ability to manage my resources exceeds God's ability to provide. That I have to lean much more on my ability to manage my things well keep a surplus back than actually God's ability to provide me whatever I'm needing in any moment. Or perhaps just to feel, and nobody wants to say it as crudely as this, do they really? But it's mine to enjoy. It's mine to enjoy. I don't want to give it away and not get to enjoy it myself. Again, it presumes that my desires somehow are more important than other people's, doesn't it? There's a faithful generosity that comes to faith should lead you to just being generous. The teacher here wants you to know that faith trusts in God 
so that you can just do it. Because you can't control or know everything anyway. And in case you weren't sure of that, this is exactly where the teacher goes next, isn't it? And he teaches us here to accept what you can't control and to know what you don't know. I wonder if uh, as a child or even as an adult, I suppose, you ever went to a swimming pool with a, uh, a wave machine in it? Uh, or perhaps better, I suppose, to just swam in the sea, but, you know, says something about me as a person. I'd rather swim in the swimming pool with a wave machine than the sea. Uh, but I wonder if you've ever done that, and as a child, tried to swim against the wave machine, because really that was the only real fun bit about it as a kid, was see if you could beat the machine, see how close you could get, see how long you could go swimming against the current. And of course, actually, what you'd find out, you know, unless you're a far superior athlete than me, which is... Yeah, highly possible uh, but that actually you really can't get that close and you really can't last that long against it machine wins there's some things that you just can't control it doesn't matter how hard that you try and actually you'll spend all your energy in trying to do it and really get no further and last no longer I wonder how much of our frustration stress tiredness in life could be retraced to us having tried to control what we simply can't control. And so the teacher turns now to address what might put you off from casting your bread out onto the waters. And the first of those things is a lack of control. The second is a lack of knowledge, and we'll come to that in a second. But look at verse 3 there with me. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And the teacher is doing something weird here. Um, because he's got the tone of a riddle. Except, you know, normally in a riddle, you know, you'd have a truth sort of being concealed or a concealed truth being revealed. That's sort of the point of it, isn't it? And yet, actually, here, it's him just actually telling you nothing more than what you could have already seen, you could have already observed. It's stating the obvious of it, isn't it? And just in case you sort of didn't pick it up the first time, he does it again and emphasizes it here. Uh, continuing in verse 3 and if the tree falls to the south or to the north in the place that the tree falls there it will lie so what's the point these are natural sort of everyday events aren't they that are utterly beyond our control and yet affects the plans of casting your bread onto the waters the elements disasters things utterly beyond your control Completely every day. Look at verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. You can look, you can think, you can worry all you like. But it doesn't change it. All the while, you're not doing what you could do. And so much of our indecision is because we feel we're out of control in that moment. I feel out of control. Now I feel really indecisive. And now it compounds itself and it just goes in a spiral, doesn't it? I'm not sure I can trust to do that. If you were, if you are, you never will be in control. 
And yet, how much life is lost trying to control what you simply can't. Because we do it. We try to control our own little world so far as we can. When you try to wrestle with God for control, you find sooner or later your arms are just too short to box with God. So the teacher reminds us here, know what you can't control and do what you can. There are two things that might put you off, casting your bread onto the walls and entrusting your plans and your future to God, stepping out in the decision he's led you to. One is about feeling a sort of lack of control and that sort of puts you off and that makes you hold back. The other is a lack of knowledge. There's a great quote from uh, Donald Rumsfeld, American politician, oddly sort of poetic, talking about knowledge in a sort of briefing. He says, as we know, there are known knowns. There are things that we know. We also know that there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. So know what you don't know. Verse 5 here. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. It begins with this uh, amazing, wondrous sort of image. And I wonder if you've ever sort of had that moment of holding a newborn baby and just being sort of lost in wonder at the way in which they're made. A little tiny uh, human with uh, everything there so complicated, so intricate. And it's amazing. It's amazing the way this life grows inside a mother, isn't it? And, you know, you can give scientific terms to, to aspects of that, but you'll never answer really the wonder of how that happens and uh, how that works. The spirit comes to the bones. The child is an innately spiritual being, even in the womb. And so just as an aside, it's so important to reject that sort of language of fetus that is used and the way in which humanity is sought to be stripped of its spirituality and value and dignity like that. It's significant. D don't doubt that the change of language is really significant. It's really so much easier to talk about something like abortion when you talk of it in terms like termination of fetus cells because it's dehumanized, isn't it? But here the images know right from the womb, the child is knit together inside the mother, that spirit is coming to bones. It's an aside, but it's the important one, isn't it? There are some things, right, that we are ready to accept we don't know because they just seem too amazing. And that's one of them. Maybe it's the one, isn't it? That whole thing of uh, pregnancy and childbirth and the wonder of how all of that works and happens. It's just beyond us. It's amazing. And yet there are many more things that actually we think we know. And we don't realize how much we maybe don't know. I probably could have chosen for this, you know, moments where you sort of become aware of how much you don't know. Maybe you, like me, I've definitely had it walk into a new job and you just become suddenly aware of, oh my goodness, what have I done? <laughs> no idea what I'm doing. Someone help me. Or maybe it's you're trying to sort of follow those sort of incredibly complicated instructions on something sort of technical or technological. 
Uh, or maybe it's just that person that you know who's just so clever, you, you just can't keep up with their thoughts. <laughs> and it, it just makes your brain ache <laughs> trying to understand what they're saying to you. But you just feel so bad and so stupid to just say, I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm really sorry. But the biggest one by far, surely, is, is trying to look after children. <laughs> I think if there's ever been anything about it, I mean, there's been plenty of things where I've realized how much I don't know. Uh, but that's been the biggest recurring one of just constantly feeling, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm, f I'm flying blind and I have some sort of sense that the plane might be about to crash into a mountain, but I don't know what any of the controls are and there's nobody co-piloting and helping me here. I've never realized how much I don't know as much as when I'm trying to raise children it's why it's a trope that's thrown out in movie after movie, isn't it? You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and The Rock and stuff like that, thrown in a nursery or something. Because you know what? There's a general truth to it that what are we doing? If you know what you're doing, please tell me afterwards. I'd love to hear. There are moments in which we realize how much we don't know. But here, it's not just one moment. It's actually most of life. You know, again, I, I, I thought when I would go to Bible college, you know, I'd, I'd come out and I'd be an expert. You know, I thought that would be the thing. And then at the end of it, I'll sort of know all the answers. And then I was really disappointed to realize, like, both times that, you know, I just feel as though I'm, like, a bit more aware of how much I don't know. <laughs> and I'm not really sure what the certificate really proves <laughs> at the end of it. You know, it's there on the wall because, you know, I paid a lot of money for it, but... I, I don't feel like I necessarily know much more for it. I just seem to know how much I don't know. We don't know as much as we think that we know. As you don't know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. You know, the child is just one tiny, amazing aspect of all that he does. So you don't know the work of God who makes everything. You don't know, you won't know, you can't know. God responds to Job in his processing of his grief and says to him, one question, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And then it's not just one question, it carries on and on, it gets worse and worse for Job. <laughs> Poor guy, where were you? How did that work out? <laughs> How does that hold together if you're waiting to embark on a call that God's given you until you know everything you'll forever be stood at the waterfront you'll never leave you'll never finally cast your bread out on the water where real wisdom begins where life is lived well is when we know we don't know and let it go so know enough to know what you don't know. Then the teacher ends verse 6 here by encouraging us to put our shift in. Uh, if you think you've had a boss who's kind of hard to please, uh, maybe spare a thought for those who've ever worked for the football pundit Roy Keane. If there's one thing that he's actually become known for, really aside from talking about football, it's his demand that people do their job and not be praised for having just done their job. It's become his sort of catchphrase. Well, that's his job. 
He says this about one player. It's like praising a postman for delivering your letters. That's his job. That's what he's supposed to do. I was speaking about uh, Harry Kane recently. He said, it frustrates me. We're talking about Harry Kane. He's a great pro. So we think he'll get his head down and train properly and perform. Isn't that what he's supposed to be doing? So we shouldn't be praising him for that either. That's his job. That's your job. And so the writer to Ecclesiastes here, the teacher, encourages us to put our shift in. Having been reminded how much we can't control, to which the right response is to accept that, and having been reminded how much we don't know, to which the right response is simply just to know that, where do we go then? You you might think, that it's going to get a bit fatalistic, a bit nihilistic here. Well, it doesn't really matter then. Well, let's just sort of give up. And yet that's not where he goes at all. And you'll misunderstand Ecclesiastes and the teacher if you think that that's what he's doing. Even though it sounds very much like that's what he's doing. His recurring phrase through the book is meaningless, meaningless, life is meaningless. But you need to know that he's toying with you. He doesn't really think life is meaningless. If he did, he wouldn't write a book which is talking about the meaning of life. But he's provoking you to think. And so where does he end up? Well, look, let's start at the end of verse 60. It says, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Sometimes that is the impetus for us to stay still, to get lazy, isn't it? Well, I don't know which one will be good, or if both will be bad, or if both will be good. So I'll wait until I feel as though I know. But for the teacher here, this uncertainty is the impetus for working hard, to put your shift in. It's precisely because you don't know which one will be good, which one may be bad, whether both will be good. Then do your job. Then do your work. Then put your shift in. In the morning, sow your seed. In the evening, withhold not your hand. Oh, work a full day. God's sovereignty, his provision, his care for us, to lead us actually to putting our work in. They're not to lead us to the sofa where we just sort of wait for God to do that, but they actually lead us to go out with a hopeful trust and expectation that he will do his work as we do ours. It's true even in sharing the gospel, isn't it? That we're called actually to go and to share wherever, whenever you can, not knowing what the results will be. Jesus talks about this as a parable of the sower, doesn't he? That the seed simply goes out everywhere. You don't know which will rise up and lead to fruit. You don't know which of that will last. But you go and you scatter the seed regardless. And God does his work. You go out and do your work. And trust that God will do his and will work his purposes out through it. So, just do it. You know what the gospel says? If God's calling you to something, then just do it in faith. Accept what you can't control. To live well, you need to accept what you can't control. And not waste your energy on it. And to do what you can. Thirdly, know what you don't know. Just as you need to accept what you can't control, you need to know what things you don't know. And let them go. 
But then lastly, I think we're shifting. With all that being said, I think we're trusting God in the uncertainty. I think we're shifting. Cast your bread upon the waters for you'll find it after many days. Let me pray for us and then we'll uh, uh, sing together uh, a final song. Father God, we live in a very uncertain world and have lived through some very uncertain times and I suppose still we're a lot of things are, uh, are very uncertain for us. There's so many things that we simply cannot know the answers to. We cannot know which way they will go one way or another. It's beyond us. And Lord, there are so many things that are beyond our control in our life. Even when we try to keep such a careful reign and hold on our little world, we find ourselves so incapable and so frustrated at, at doing that. Father, we thank you that you're a good God, that you have, though we have our plans, your purposes stand. Lord, help us to trust in your plans and your purposes. And Lord, where there's those moments where we need to simply just do it, just stop standing by the water's edge, stop constantly flirting at the margins with you, but step out. Help us to have that faith in you and your goodness and kindness and uh, provision and promises to know that we can entrust our steps to you, to know that we can step out, we can cast our bread onto the waters and know your kind and gracious, loving, fatherly hand guiding us and keeping us. Father, help us to have that humility that is okay to recognize what we can't control what we can't know and to accept it and to trust you that you are all knowing all powerful you have all in hand we don't need to spend ourselves trying to be you instead we can glorify you and enjoy you by being in your image by being your people by doing what you've sent us out to do and Lord, I pray for us in this upcoming week where we all go out to work in lots of different forms and places. That Lord, you will help us to entrust our steps, our working days to you, to do your work where you've placed us. And to trust you to be fulfilling your purposes there. And Lord, where we have chances to share the, your love and good news with people, to trust you to simply share it where we don't know what the results will be we don't know uh, how it will go or not but Lord to entrust ourselves to you to step out and to walk with you and Father we thank you that you're such a good God who holds our hand and doesn't leave us or depart from us you are always caring for us so we thank you and Holy Spirit I just ask that you might impress these truths upon our hearts that will Again, we might just know them for, for ourselves. Well, sometimes it's easy to imagine that this is true for other people who seem so much more together than us uh, and so much better than us, but it's harder to accept it for myself, for ourselves. So, Spirit, I just pray that you might do that uh, deep work within us, I pray, that we might know you and love you and trust you. 
your people will hear you look amazed at. For your glory, ask it and for our good. Amen. I invite you to uh, stand and then we'll sing uh, a final song together. <laughs>